This Dharma talk was recorded at Prairie Mountain Zen Center in Longmont, Colorado. I'd like to introduce our speaker. Um, Rick Vosper's Dharma name is Daitoku, which means uh, great compassion. Uh, he's coming to us from rural Arkansas where he lives with his family. Uh, families elucidate uh, great compassion from us. So he is uh, steeped in great compassion. He is a, well, relatively long time student of Zen practice and Dharma study. So I'm glad he uh, agrees to study in order to share his studies with us through a talk. Thank you. Thank you, Jodasan, and uh, good morning to all of you. I, uh, I titled this talk, Believing Nothing, because when I first came to the Dharma, I literally believed nothing. I, I had no knowledge of the uh, Buddhist uh, liturgy or precepts, and I just wanted uh, some sort of secular help in meditation. And uh, I first started practicing Zen with Soba and Catherine Tanis in 1995 at Santa Cruz Zen Center. She was in the Shunru Suzuki lineage, but I found she also studied with our own founding teacher, Dainan Katagiri Roshi, uh, when Katagiri was with the San Francisco Zen Center from 1969 until Suzuki Roshi's death in 1971. I was a pretty hardcore atheist back in uh, 90, 1995, and I wasn't all sure about prostrating myself in front of golden idols or much less parroting the content of some liturgy. And I was certainly not going to profess belief in things I didn't understand and hadn't experienced myself. But Catherine just said, that's okay. Do the parts that feel right, and we'll see how they work for you. So I did, and they did, and the parts that felt right I did the parts that felt right, and very gradually over a period of years, I realized they worked for me. And that continues to be the case 25-odd years later. The fruits of our practice are both very subtle and very profound. It is in the nature of our Soto tradition, they also tend to happen very slowly or gradually. It's like Suzuki Roshi's metaphor of walking in a dense fog and not realizing you're getting wet until you're completely soaked. At least that was my experience. There is a famous quote attributed to Shakyamuni Buddha that says, believe nothing, no matter where you read it or who said it, no matter if I have said it, unless it agrees with your own reason and your own common sense. That's a famous quote, and I believed it for years. In fact, I believed it right up until last week when I looked it up as part of my preparation for this talk, and I discovered the historic Buddha never said that. Turns out this is a bad translation of the Kalama Sutra, so bad, in fact, that it contradicts the message of the Sutra, which says that reason and common sense are not sufficient for ascertaining the truth. Here's the real quote from the Kalama Sutra. This is uh, translated by uh, Thanissaro Bhikkhu in 1994. Uh, what the Buddha actually said was, when there are reasons for doubt, uncertainty is born. So in this case, Kalamas, don't go by reports, by legends, by traditions, by scripture, by logical conjecture, by inference, by analogies, by agreement through pondering views, by probability, or by the thought, this contemplative is our teacher. 
when you know for yourselves that these qualities are unskillful, these qualities are blameworthy, these qualities are criticized by the wise, these qualities, when adopted and carried out, lead to harm and suffering, then you should abandon them. And then he goes on to say the same thing about uh, positive practices, which yield good results. So it's not, it's not reason or common sense that's the deciding factor, but knowing for yourself. And as Thinasari uh, Buku says in his translator notes, indeed, any belief must be tested by the results it yields when put into practice. And to guard against the possibility of any bias or limitations in one's understanding of these results, they must be further checked against the experience of people who are wise. What makes Buddhism unique among religions is that there are no articles of faith as such. The notion that you have to believe certain things in order to be a part of this religion. Instead, we are offered ideas like the three refuges and sutras or the precepts and are invited to discover the truth of those ideas for ourselves. For me, that is an incredibly powerful thing. It is through the process of self-discovery that we come to belief. As Roshi John Halifax says, the religious, the agnostic, and the completely irreligious, as well as those inclined psychologically, mystically, shamanically, or socio-politically, can all find a home in the very big tent of Buddhism. The Venerable K. Rathnasara from the Dhammakami tradition says, Buddhism is a path of transformation. The journey to spiritual perfection begins with oneself as we have the inherent potential to become peaceful and happy human beings. One is a Buddhist not by label, but by practice. Being born into a Buddhist family, being convinced of or liking the Buddhist teachings, calling oneself a Buddhist, these do not make one a Buddhist. Only when one practices the Dharma can one truly call oneself a Buddhist. By definition, a Buddhist is someone who takes refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. This has profound meaning and many practical aspects to it. So if there is no one outside telling us what we have to believe, if there are no commandments telling us what we have to do, how do we know what right action is as Buddhists? There's plenty of help available through the Dharma and through our teachers, literally millennia of wisdom. We use the Dharma as a starting point to find out for ourselves, and then we enforce our practice through vows. A vow in Buddhism is very different than it is in our Western culture, and the difference can be confusing. I'm referring, I will be referring for the rest of this talk to this book, Living by Vow, by, uh, by Shohaku Okamura Roshi. We, some of you may remember studying this about a year ago in the uh, Thursday group. I was really struck by that book and it made a profound impact on my, myself and my practice. And I wanted to share some parts of it with you today. The, in it, Okamori Roshi has this to say about the, about the vows in Western practice versus Buddhist practice. He says, it is difficult in part because the meaning of vow departs from the usual English meaning of a solemn promise or a personal commitment. In Buddhism, vow has a much larger and more complex meaning. To understand what we need, to understand, we need to consider Japanese Buddhist culture. Elsewhere, he says, we understand that to live by vow is not to accept a fixed doctrine, but as a natural expression of our life force. And part of the definition of a bodhisattva is a person who lives by vow instead of by karma. Elsewhere, Okamura says, vow is kind of a long-range project or plan. We don't need to be in a hurry. Just practice and recharge our energy in the Sangha. Practice, sit, keep the seed alive, and when the conditions ripen, it will grow. 
So a Buddhist vow is more than what we say we're going to do. It is a literal expression of who we are and how we choose to live our lives. As an example, let's take the four bodhisattva vows, which we chant together every Sunday at the close of practice, just as we will chant them again a little later this morning. Here at Prairie Mountain Zen Center, the translation we use goes like this. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharmas are boundless. I vow to wake to them. The Buddha way is beyond compare. I vow to embody it. In addition to being one of the last things we do at the end of Sunday service, the four vows are also among the most important and most challenging to understand. The first thing we notice when we look at them is each, each vow is impossible to realize. Each one has two parts. Sentient beings are numberless, yet we vow to free them all. Delusions are inexhaustible, yet we vow to end them all. We also vow to master the boundless dharmas and to attain the unsurpassable Buddha way. How can we possibly do all these things, let alone vow to do them? Okamura Roshi says these contradictions are very important and have both a profound practical and religious meaning. Key to this is that they map to the Four Noble Truths. The first is the truth of suffering or dissatisfaction. Sentient beings are numberless and they all experience the truth of suffering of dukkha here in this world of samsara. The second truth is the nature of suffering, which is rooted in our delusions and delusive desires. Delusions are inexhaustible. The third is the truth of the cessation of suffering, which is to be found in the boundless dharmas. And the fourth is the path that leads to the end of suffering, the Eightfold Noble Path of the Buddha Way. Okimura Roshi says this about the four vows. As we said, there is a contradiction inherent in these vows. We vow to do things that are impossible. This means that our practice is endless and that we cannot completely fulfill the four vows. Our practice and study are like trying to empty the ocean with a spoon, one spoonful at a time. It is certainly a stupid way of life, but not a clever one. But a clever person cannot be a bodhisattva. We are aiming at something internal, eternal, infinite, and absolute. No matter how hard we practice, study, or help other people, there is no end to it all. When we compare our achievement with something infinite, absolute, and eternal, eternal, it's like nothing. There is something deeply meaningful in our comparison to the absolute. Understanding ourselves in this way frees our practice from competition based on selfishness. This is a most important point. We cannot be proud of our practice, and we don't need to be too humble about our lack of practice or understanding. We are just as we are. Our practice is to take one or more steps toward the infinite, the absolute, moment by moment, one step at a time. Then Okamura goes on to say this. According to Dogen Zenji, this one step, or even a half step, in our practice is the manifestation of absolute enlightenment. This is what he meant when he spoke of just sitting, or shikantaza. When we sit, we just sit. That doesn't mean we don't need to do anything else. It doesn't mean that we are all right only when we are sitting. It means that when we sit, there is no comparison. We are right now, right here, with this body and mind, awakening to reality. This is the complete manifestation of absolute, infinite, eternal enlightenment. Even a short period of sitting, and we sat two 20-minute sessions this morning, even a short period of, of sitting is a bodhisattva practice. And our practice is not only sitting. All of our day-to-day activities should be based on the four vows and the four noble truths, which are the basic teaching of Shakyamuni Buddha. And elsewhere, Okamura Roshi says, we're independent, small, and limited. 
But when we sit in this posture and let go of thought and our limited desires, we are moved by a vow that comes from the very core of our being, and there is no separation between us and the whole universe. Wow. When I uh, first read that, I felt like the top of my head was going to come off. But let's, let's go back to the question of living by vow. Okamari Roshi ends his chapter on the four bodhisattva vows with this summary. It says, vow is one of the most important aspects of practice as a bodhisattva. It can be understood from three different perspectives. First, a vow is a direction for an individual. We live in the reality of our life, whether we are deluded or enlightened. The reality is called as it isness or tathada. It is also true that we frequently deviate from this reality of life because we are deceived by our egocentricity. The reality of our life is not so simple for us human beings. Enlightened or deluded, we are living out our as it isness, and yet we are always blind to it. This is our life as human beings. First, we have to realize that we are deluded. Then we have to go back to the reality of life through the practice of this reality. As it isness for human beings is dynamic. We live in the reality of life, yet we always lose sight of it, so we must return to it. These three points are the movement, the actual reality of our lives. To go back to the reality of life in the midst of this reality is our practice. This practice is based on vow. The vow is not a special promise we make to the Buddha, but rather a manifestation of the foundation of our being. This is the most fundamental meaning in taking a vow. We go back to the reality of life within that reality. The second aspect of living by vow is to live within the sangha, sangha and practice other, with other people, that is, to walk together with all other beings. We do this with three minds, joyful mind, parental mind, and magnanimous mind. Our vow is manifest in our day-to-day -day lives as these three minds. Finally, we practice as a sangha, not simply as an individual, but as one whole body. The sangha itself needs to have direction to grow. That is the meaning of living by vow as a sangha. By working on the vow as a sangha, little by little, one thing at a time, like raindrops, we meet the challenges and create a new stage in the history of Buddhism in the West. So he's speaking very specifically about our practice here in the West and in accordance with Western traditions. A while back in this talk, I quoted K. Rathanasara as saying, by definition, a Buddhist is one who takes refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. This has a profound meaning and practical aspects to it, but I'd like to return to that now. On Monday and Wednesday morning services, we make a vowel of our karma and recite the three refuges, also known as the three treasures. I take refuge in Buddha, vowing with all sentient beings, acquiring the great way, awakening the unsurpassable mind. I take refuge in Dharma, vowing with all sentient beings, deeply entering the teachings, wisdom like the sea. I take refuge in the Sangha, vowing with all sentient beings, bringing harmony to all, completely without hindrance. Okamura Roshi says, when we become Buddhists, we first make repentance, that's a vowel, and take refuge in the three treasures of Buddhism, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Without these three, there is no Buddhism. Shakyamuni Buddha, born in India about 2,500 years ago, is our original teacher. He awakened to the reality of our life. Both his teachings about this reality and the reality itself are called Dharma. Sangha is the community of people who study the Buddha's teachings and follow his way of life. His first students were the five monks who had practiced with him before his enlightenment. They understood, became his disciples, and established the first Sangha. 
from the very beginning, the Buddha as teacher, the Dharma as teaching, and the Sangha as community have been the essential elements of Buddhism. Regarding the specific vows, Okamura Roshi says this. He says, when we accept the Buddha's teachings as a student of the Buddha, we make this vow with all sentient beings. It would be better to translate this as all living things. The next phrase, acquiring the great way, is an interesting expression. Okamura Roshi goes on to explain that the Japanese words we translate as acquiring the, acquiring the great way literally mean body and to understand. So they can be translated as understanding with the body. Then he says, we have to understand the great way with our bodies. The Buddha teaching is not something we can understand merely with our intellects. We have to practice it in our day-to-day -day lives. To understand and agree with his teaching is not enough. If we agree with his teaching, we have to carry it out to live it. That means to embody, study, learn, or incorporate into our everyday lives. Here is the way. Here, the way is a translation of the Sanskrit word bodhi. This phrase means we have to embody the great awakening in our daily lives. The first refuge also includes the phrase awakening the unsurpassable mind. When we embody the great awakening, we awaken to the awakening mind. It's a strange expression, but that is the reality. We awaken the awakening mind in order to wake up. We usually think that we are awake except when we are asleep at night or napping. But actually, we are usually asleep or dreaming. We imagine this world, our lives, and ourselves. We create dream worlds and then believe that they are reality. And yet, they are only constructs of our minds. To awaken means to drop off body and mind, become free from dreaming, and to encounter reality. We, act, we try to act based on the reality that exists before we process the world through the intellect. Another aspect of unsurpassable mind is compassion for all beings. When we awake to the reality that has not yet been processed by our ego-centered mind, we cannot help having compassion for all beings. We share air, water, and life by offering ourselves to each other. We live supported by all beings. In turn, we must support all other beings. We have to awaken to the reality that we live together as knots in Indira's net. We do not and cannot live independently as limited and conditioned individuals. This is the meaning of taking refuge in the Buddha. The next section begins, I take refuge in the Dharma. The Sanskrit word Dharma has many meanings, but the two there are two that are important here, the Buddha's teaching and the reality of all beings. It continues, bowing with all sentient beings, deeply entering the teachings. The word original words for the teaching meant sutra and warehouse, storehouse, or treasury. So the phrase literally means deeply entering the storehouse of the sutras. In a chapter of the Shobin Genzo titled Sansukyo, the Mountains and Water Sutra, Dogen Zenji writes, these mountains and waters are present in the manifestation of the ancient Buddhas. This implies that the reality of all things itself and all beings is itself a sutra. Not only the mountains and waters, but also the birds singing, the sun shining, and everything happening around us are sutras teaching us the reality of being. They teach impermanence and interdependence. Nothing lasts forever, everything is always changing, and there is no fixed ego or substance. All beings in the universe teach this reality, but we don't listen, don't really see it. The phrase deeply entering the teaching doesn't require that we read all the Buddhist texts. Although reading is an important part of entering the teaching, the deeper meaning is really to awaken to the reality before our eyes, the reality that we actually live. 
The phrase wisdom like the sea refers to an unlimited and boundless perspective. We are like a frog in a well that can only see a small patch of sky. Our view is limited, yet we think we are the center of the world and we know everything. We base our actions on our conditioned understanding, conception, and opinions. The beginning of wisdom is to see that our view is limited. The view that we have at sea is wider than in a well. There is no limitation to something so vast and boundless. By studying the Buddhist teachings, we become free from our limited views and open ourselves to boundless reality. The meaning of taking refuge in the Dharma is that we value the Dharma more than our own limited opinions and views based on our personal karma. Third vow begins, I take refuge in the Sangha. Sangha is a Sanskrit word meaning an association or union of people. In India, at the time of the Buddha, cities were forming and some people were freed from the daily labor of agriculture. Classes of merchants, craftsmen, warriors, and nobles arose. People established unions or associations called sanghas. A sangha is a democratic community of members who share the same interests and status. The vow continues with vowing with all sentient beings, bringing harmony to all. The phrase bringing harmony is a translation of the Japanese word, which means unify. Buddhist Sangha members are unified by the Dharma. To have a community instead of a collection of individuals, to have harmony, we need to have something that unifies. To make soup, we chop ingredients and put them in a pot, then add seasoning and cook it, and cook it until the individual flavors blend into one taste. Similarly, we need to cook ourselves and make those individuals into one community with one taste, the taste of Dharma. Harmony unifies a collection of individuals into a community in which we can take refuge. The next phrase is completely without hindrance. With harmony and unity, there is no hindrance. When individuals think me first, endless problems and obstacles arise. But when we wake up to the impermanence and egolessness and share all of life in this moment, there is no hindrance. Of course, there are still difficulties to overcome, but with harmony, we can work on them. If we if we have discord, we cannot. That is the meaning of Sangha and of taking refuge in the three treasures. In the final part of the chapter on the three refuges, Okamura talks about the three treasures as a final place to return. He says, Dogen Zenji quotes another phrase from an old Buddhist scripture about why we take refuge in the three treasures. It says, we take refuge in these three treasures because they are the final place of return. Our life is a journey. Childhood is like our home where we are born. We don't need to go anywhere. We're happy simply to be there. When we grow up, we become travelers. We search here and there for treasure, something valuable or meaningful. We yearn for something better. We seek happiness and satisfaction. Sometimes we are happy, sometimes we are sad. Finally, at the end of our lives, we face death. Regardless of our success or failure, each of us has to face it. When we do, we are afraid. Wealth, fame, and social position don't help us. We face death alone. Where then is the final place to which we return? This is, I think, the fundamental question we have to keep in mind in modern society. It's easy to forget in the past, people were born, lived, got sick, and died all at home. Life and death were right there in front of everyone. But in our modern society, people are born at the hospital. When they're sick, they go to the hospital. And when they die, it's usually at the hospital. Life and death are hidden from us. While we are young and healthy, we can forget about life and death. Suddenly we are aging and sick. The matter of life and death is in front of our eyes and we are afraid. This is the reality of our life. Before we have to face death, we should try to think about life and death. 
to awaken from the dream of success even while dreaming of it. We must wake up to the reality of the impermanence of our lives. Because of impermanence, our death is inevitable. We must find the best and most peaceful way of life. Success, wealth, and fame are not significant in the final stage of our lives. The important point is to return to the matter of life and death, to wake up to the reality of this body and mind, and on that basis, to create a way of life. This, I think, is the meaning of taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. You don't have to become a Buddhist to take refuge. Buddhism is only one of many paths, one way to wake up to the reality of our life. When we become a Buddhist due to various causes and conditions, we follow the path of the Buddha. We seek to manifest the universal life force we have been given. We live on this earth with everything we need as a gift from nature. It seems that our society doesn't live in accordance with the nature. It acts like a cancer, independently of its own way. When a cancer becomes too strong, the body dies. When the body dies, the cancer must also die. Cancer is paradoxical. Modern civilization is similar. We chase after prosperity. We live separate from nature and build an artificial world around us. As we get stronger and stronger, we destroy more and more of the environment. When nature dies, we die. How can we go back to nature, to the vital life force? This is the essential koan for us, the question we have to work on. In a sense, this whole universe is like a hospital. We are all sick. How can we recover from this human sickness? The Buddhist teachings and the Buddhist way can be one of the paths to recovery. The Buddha is the doctor who guides the healing process. Dharma practice is the medicine he prescribes. The Sangha and all living beings in this universe are nurses to add our aid in our recovery. This is what the text means by these three treasures, the final place to return. They release us from the suffering of life based on egocentricity and return us to the original wholesome way of life. So the four bodhisattva vows and the triple treasure are a two example of vows we use to direct ourselves in relation to the world around us. As you can see, they're very simple on the face of them, but they have lots of subtlety as we explore them and go deeper. And that's part of the process of personal growth and working with vows. We start by tentatively practice what, practicing what feels right and confirm it for ourselves through the results in our own practice and through people we know are wise and accomplished in the way. There is nothing to believe here in the Judeo-Christian sense. Instead, our belief takes the form of certainty of things we have confirmed for ourselves to be true. And on a personal note, that's how I went from believing nothing, to taking vows, and becoming a confirmed Buddhist in our Soto Zen tradition. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a Dharma talk from Prairie Mountain Zen Center in Longmont, Colorado. To learn more about us or to make a donation, visit us at prairiemountain.org.